just like a, it's like a mean trick like I'm good at too, you know? Um, Recorded before a live audience, April 10th, 2016, from Athens, Georgia, from Woodrow Street, from Dolly's basement, this is Dude Where's My Poetry. Jack and Jay Cherry with a song called Noob. The microphone array was a little distant, so you probably noticed all of the uh, background noises being picked up. Uh, there's a lot of jingling going on. That was uh, that was dogs. A lot of a lot of dogs in Dolly's basement that night. That's for sure. All right. Uh, next up, we've got Trevor Lisa reading an excerpt from a longer piece about uh, college athletes. Walking up the sidewalk on Notre Dame Avenue, Darius flagrantly adjusts a wedgie. 
It's warm outside. He's wearing headphones. The bookstore up ahead has a kind of medieval theme park look to it with white stone and harsh square corners. There's a muffled shroff of his socks and flip-flops on the pavement. He's got his dreadlocks and a ponytail per usual, except today he's literally using a giant rubber band, as in like a rubber band that you take from a glass bowl at the front desk of your local library to hold it up. He pushes the silver appetizer plate-sized button with the handicap logo, and the doors open with an electric growl. Hi, welcome to the Notre Dame bookstore. Darius is welcomed by a team of store associates led by an amicable brawn with a vaguely Texan accent. This is over the crackling plastic rustle of retail bags being shaken and opened and filled, repeated irregular beeping from the scanners scanning things at the register. Darius's eyes are recalibrating from the August sun to meet the lighting of the bookstore. It is indeed very busy on this Wednesday afternoon. Darius walks in and to the left, nodding his head to the greeters. He's still listening to his music, but on a lower volume. Textbooks? Oh yeah, just straight back and upstairs, man. Cool, thanks. Past the team of greeters, Darius is met by two muscular mannequins fully, glad, fully clad in the white home and navy away uniforms. Their gold helmets shine from the light coming in through the windows. And Nick is absolutely right on the school thing. Nick's from like a previous paragraph. He's like a team at Arius's. Saying that Darius Williams is a student at Notre Dame is like saying that a tomato is a type of fruit. Regular students go to class and get drunk. Darius and co. spend their evenings at mandated two-hour time management seminars and catered dinners. They literally handed him a laptop with included Geek Squad services and pre-programmed Microsoft Office suite the second day he got here. His education is paid for, his dorm is paid for, his meals are paid for, any type of medical cost is essentially covered. The bookstore looks to Darius like a golf pro shop. The place is massive and lit to a tasteful dim and seems to be constructed almost entirely of dark oak wood. Collegian brass-heavy band music playing fight songs over the loudspeakers would be inappropriate here. Regular students go to the library and study and drink coffee. Darius has two 45-minute tutoring sessions a week per class. When regular students get hurt doing regular people things, presumably, they suck it up and walk around campus. If Darius were to get injured, a white ND-logoed handy van would cart him to and from class. He's on meal plan, but honestly, his grab-and-go meals are better than anything in the dining halls. Gra grab-and-go, they get like meals at the, at the swanky-ass hotel like on North Campus. Football ones and twos get massages on Thursday afternoons. Socks, shoes, t-shirts. The most taxing aspect of the whole ordeal is internal. His day is entirely a physical gesture. Wake up, lift, eat, meeting, class, 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 eat, film, practice, eat, tutoring, masturbate, maybe, sleep, this season, the school is pushing culture beats scheme as a kind of theme or saying for the football season, and it seems like every fucking week, Darius is getting a t-shirt with culture beats scheme written across it in differing fonts and colors. He notices a big square banner holding the phrase suspended over a mannequin touting a Notre Dame hockey jersey. Mannequins populate the bookstore in various candid poses. They're clad in Kelly green, gold, and navy variations of everything from $85 full-zip Under Armour jackets to jerseys to Notre Dame-logoed Peter Millar sweaters. 
The apparent army of store associates are either helping customers or folding everything that can possibly be folded. Some of the mannequins are wearing hats, but not all of them. Darius is holding the white, yellow, and pink triplicate carbonless paper in his left hand. It's got his books on it. <clears throat> Folded hot dog style. He picks one of the sledders up off of the rack and checks the price. It's $130 and feels like it. Darius considers maybe coming in when he gets the rest of his per diem to get one for his dad as an early birthday present. Some of the senior linemen were telling him that they do most of their Christmas shopping in the bookstore. <clears throat> Last night, Darius got an email from their defensive coordinator informing him that the Notre Dame defense will be going up next Friday during their bye week to volunteer at some Chicago suburb elementary school book fair. Random ass shit like this every day. Tonight, Darius will go to a tutoring session for his art appreciation class. Who the fuck gets tutored for art? He picks up a blue carabiner off the rack and puts it back, walking in the direction of a displayed billiard set. But it's nuts, the shit they give these kids. Food, clothing, physicals. Darius could get a note taker for his classes to literally take his notes for him. They've given him a quantity of muscle milk and Advocare pre-workout that, if mass injected, would probably turn a human fetus into something like Lou Ferrigno. The athletic department just bought the entire track team these stupid handlebarless Segway hoverboard-looking things to get around campus. The athletes don't even physically walk around in the same way that the rest of the student body does. Darius, this being only his second time in the bookstore, saunters from Peter Millar to Under Armour to diploma frames to gifts. $200 for a Yeti cooler. Fingerless gloves cost $18. The back left hall wall holds what looks like no less than 90 different types and colors of Notre Dame hats, beanies, visors, fighting Irish cowboy hats, boxy winter hats with long strings where the ears go, snapbacks, khaki-colored and sort of beekeeper-looking hats with one-third of the brim folded up that people wear on safari TV shows. He reaches the staircase, sawing audibly. It is flattering to be stared at. There is nothing selfish about wanting to feel important or in getting a massage every Thursday because A, you are actually sore as shit. B, your private university has a multi-million dollar broadcasting deal with NBC dictating that all of your games be nationally televised. C, you go to a school with notable and well-off alumni who genuinely enjoy watching you do something that you genuinely enjoy doing and will happily and regularly donate to keep you happy. There is nothing wrong with being important. Darius Williams gets free stuff and access to a celebrity class for playing a game. Any protestation about this fact is flagrant jealousy. One would do well by being skilled at things for which one can be compensated highly. So what if Notre Dame tuition has been rising at a rate between 3.7 and 4.4% annually since 2010? Football is important. Universities should continue to pay its players. There is money in sports, just like there is money in the advertising of sports-related gear. Darius isn't being celebrated for uh, clubbing baby seals, or profiting off of healthcare surtaxes, or gerrymandering. He's good at a game. He knows it's trivial, but it's earned. He gets to walk around Notre Dame and not ask to use the restroom because he is great, and because people want to reward him for it. Like Under Armour. His clothes aren't a gift. Under Armour assumes that by partnering with Notre Dame, it will indirectly benefit from the marketing that results from this, albeit large, human billboard, wearing their products around campus, on television, in front of a live audience of 80,000 people with disposable incomes. 
at the end of the day, as well as the beginning and middle of the day, Darius Williams' physical person is an advertisement for Under Armour. It's not like he doesn't understand this. Darius might not be the quickest sled in the garage school-wise, but this kid is no fool. He gets it. They all do. They talk about it. They all sat through Coach Kelly's speech about fines for non-Under Armour brand gear and games. They'd have to go out of their way anyway to, to wear some other brand. He understands the system and is benefiting from it fairly. He shows the white carbonless copy to a bookstore associate named Ian, who informs Darius that he will walk him to his materials, which are organized, which are organized alphabetically by course prefix. There is a combat-ready pre-deployment quality to these books. They look ready for purchase. Behind Ian, who is perusing the, the form with his index finger, or sorry, I, I misplaced the comma. <clears throat> Anything out of stock or not in store will be noted and personally ordered from him from the publisher, Ian explains. He adjusts his glasses. Darius tells him he appreciates it, taking out his water bottle, sipping a large sip. Ian's wearing a faded blue button-down that looks like it's made of denim. Afterwards, Darius will walk across the Rex sports fields in the direction of the purple, the purple-roofed Fine Arts Building and the white stone contours of Notre Dame Stadium to the Student Athlete Academic Center, where Courtney, his counselor, mentor, whatever, the black chick with the perm, will sign and will sign and keep the yellow copy of his list, affirming that he did in fact obtain his books. Number one on the list is Theo 2243, Martyrs and Martyrdom. All Notre Dame students are required to take two theology and two philosophy classes. Darius fulfilled the first half of the requirement in the summer with a solid B- and a basic Theo 10001 intro class. Ian reaches for the $186 textbook. The cover is red and orange and features the silhouetted profile of a familiar beard and thorny crown-laden face. <clears throat> And uh, yes, I'll get, uh, I'll get that one for you, big guy. He hands the book to Darius, who tucks it underneath his arm. Neither of them make eye contact. Um, yeah, cool. Appreciate it. Darius still has his headphones in, even though he isn't actually playing any music. He adjusts the rubber band to keep his dreadlocks contained. They head to the ENGL section, Ian slightly ahead, scanning the shelves, still holding Darius' white copy. So you guys practicing hard right now? Uh, yeah, it's straight. Not as bad as the summer. Weather's better than it was a few weeks ago. Good stuff, good stuff, says Ian absently. They will continue to converse at this pace. Darius will say that his classes are going well. Trevor Lisa, folks. Trevor Lisa studied English and Communication Studies at UGA, where he was the senior editor of Stillpoint magazine. A Romance, which he wrote for his creative writing thesis, is his first novel. Excerpts of A Romance have been published by Mandala Journal and the Sundial Review. His thesis earned him a research assistantship through the Center for Undergraduate Research Opportunities. He now lives in Chicago. Next up, four poems by Annie Ho. Your skin is smooth and milky white like my grandma's good porcelain. 
the kind that only comes out once a year. I would reach for them, fingers like frantic moths to a flame. If common clay and feldspar could become something so beautiful, then why can't I? My nubby fingers broke a plate once, and the trail of broken plate looked like the tail of a, of a shooting star, but I did not make a wish. I lie in your bed at night and trace the contours of your still body. Your freckles and moles become constellations beneath my feeble hands. Your miniature universe makes me agoraphobic. Your galaxies makes your galaxies make me dizzy. I think that your sh your flesh may shatter me, but maybe I'll make a wish this time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Oh. <laughs> I guess I have this other one that I wrote. Uh, I have trouble sleeping at night, so I like to go to Walmart at like 2 a.m. Uh, somehow being like with all those people who also go grocery shopping at 2 a.m. makes me feel less lonely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Walmart Supercenter, self-satisfied, ubiquitous house of worship. Sam Walton, patron saint of lonely souls, whose holier-than-thou attitude comes with 50 cents off of watermelon. Blue-clad arms outstretched, yellow neon signs humming with desire, come worship me. Forlorn souls and sleepy-eyed suburbia come here to find capitalist catharsis, relief and pardon underneath fluorescent lights. Oh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It is fine, my child. Just 10 lamps and 20 bouncy balls for you. <laughs> I, am a I am a religious zealot in this place. Buy one, get one, half off, Les Heads. Welcome to Walmart. The scent of rain drying on hot asphalt makes my bones ache with longing. I am 13 years old again, holding a mound of black bean sticky rice, holding my Bonwai's hand in Saigon. Saigon wakes up at 5 a.m. every day, and the streets always smell like heat. It's always so busy with people and business. I ache for the taste of sweet, sweet jum jum. Its red spikes always brushing my fingertips. I smell the salt of being a drang in my sleep. It is a strange thing to be homesick when you already have a home. I once had a map of the world on the wall of my childhood bedroom, and I would try to trace a line from Georgia, USA, to Saigon, Vietnam, but I felt like I could never reach. I can never finish notebooks, so I always have like a million lying around. I guess this is my last piece. I have a very short uh, list of poems to read tonight. <laughs> All right. Uh, genes and traditions aren't the only things that are passed down. Trauma drips its course through generations. It lives in the panic in the voice of my grandfather, who sleeps lightly at night, his hands clutching his blanket. He mumbles names. He sees his fallen friends lying in the dense green of our motherland. 
My grandmother doesn't bat an eyelash, but you can read it on her face. Trauma has etched itself like braille onto her skin. Run your fingers along the lines, they say, I know loss. I know it's there when my mom's face, bleached with creams and powders, turns a shade paler when an angry customer screams, go back to your jungle, please learn English. But my mom has been here since she was 16 years old. Trauma hardens my dad's eyes when he drinks and has to remember. He is 14 years old again and in a Thai prison with no one. He had never even left his village, but he was brave enough to cross an entire ocean only to find himself landlocked for five years. Trauma teaches us silence and how it's necessary for survival. My grandfather pretends the shadows in his bedroom don't scare him and that he doesn't miss his country. My grandma's eyes are hard, but she says nothing, never speaks of life before. My parents don't speak up when we are oppressed because they say we came here for a new life. We're not here to start trouble, but I know I can no longer be silent. I cannot fully fathom the extent of my familial trauma and how it would manifest, manifest itself in my life, but I know this, silence is not the course of life. I am not a model minority. I carry the waters of being being in my blood and I cannot be silent, I am powerful. <laughs> That was Annie Ho with four unnamed poems. Annie studies public health and women's studies at UGA. In her spare time, she curates Locket, a zine for and by women of color. According to her, she also makes bad art. This one is called Taking Stock. In the time of the town with no fireplaces, when I worked in the liquor store for the man twice divorced and deported from England, there was a lot of standing and stooping and dragging a broom's haggard bristles across the parking lot in the morning. It was the year Mason got hit by a train, the day I shot the television through and drank coffee until my bile turned black and drank whiskey until I grew hair on my teeth and none of my pants fit me and I couldn't sit straight in a chair for weeks. And this is my last one. It's, uh, it's a bit of a long one. It's it's the kitchen sink, baby. It's, uh, <laughs> this one is also um, somewhat of a devotional uh, dedicated to, to Will. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's kindled my, my, my poetry spirit, if you will.
When Robert's name arises, so does the morning rain. So does the last honeysuckle cling to the vine. So is the arrangement of smoking paraphernalia set at the porn shop. So are the tired bus drivers sick of their chain-smoking lives. So is John Hickenlooper named Hickenlooper Hedge jumper. So too are the blue eyes with a little dirt in them, and the dog paws and the daffodils. Almost clear headed now, my liver swimming like a Celt through this rain. Almost home despite desire, almost home despite this endless traffic. Where we're going, we don't need radio, though we know the bar is closed. In my memory, we're still sitting on the portico, hoping this summer doesn't go out like a young love or cigarette. This time of my life was a street corner redolent of lavender that now smells of wet sponge, and I didn't forget the Bradford pear, the pitiful stench. And occasionally, in good weather, at a red light, we'd approach an osmanthus fragrance bleeding out, as though it had opened itself just when the world was closing, or had a change of heart and suffered the confusion they are wont to have. Two. Riding my bicycle faster and faster and faster, riding my bicycle faster and faster, riding my bicycle, looking into the distant windowed laundromats, weary of so many wheels turning, lightning comes in through the cracks, an open X, evening spills from behind us in the soils of sleeping night after night after night, a zipper opens inside me. A rain petal forms a penumbra beneath my umbrella. Beneath the chrysanthemum streetlight, a bright puddle forms. Weary of so many wheels spinning distantly, bigger than us, we thought. We had it figured out, though it was just beginning. And I thought I might as well have stayed home with all my roommates gone, except the dog, who is nameless and for good reason. He is lucky, his wheels are ruddy and worn by Georgia Clay. Robert says love is like a Hendrix song. It never ends, it just fades out, though he was more in love with the guitar solo. Like a blind musician, he knows the guitar sees with its teeth and speaks well of grapefruit and peppercorn and pork loin, and all I had was potato rice, and the dog had dog food, and some days we ate tomatoes out of the can, the way we were free when we drank each other's wallets thin, and wrote none of this down because our lives were poor and not worth moving film images. It was all so horrifying, I couldn't explain the way the train steel crushed our words the way we laid pennies on the street. It was worthless walking back from the journalism building that night, walking my bicycle back through the rain, after reading poetry when everything was wet, though what we were was to begin with after poetry, 
when your jacket smelled like a wet dog, when we glimmered the way the red lights did on Baldwin, on false cobblestone, when there was an aura to all things wet and moving. Thank you. Truly, reading an excerpt from a longer poem since titled Lightspeed Braille. My name is Kelly Petronas. I live in Athens, Georgia. I help organize events around town, including Kraken Jokes and Dude Where's My Poetry. I'm also editor of Lightwater Poetry Journal. Check it out at lightwaterlit.org. I also put together this podcast, so stay tuned. Next up, we're going to phase into the interview section of the podcast, get a little bit of feedback from the poets. All right, first up, we spoke to Trevor Lisa about his uh, relationship to and uh, really mixed feelings about uh, um, the current situation, I suppose, of uh, just student-athletes. No, I, 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 I think that is, because in reality, I think my feelings on it are pretty complex, you know. Um, I think if, if you spend enough time around student-athletes and kind of uh, sit down and look at, like, what they do for our universities and stuff... I mean, there's, there's like, no question that they absolutely deserve to be compensated for it and, like, compensated pretty highly and stuff. But on the other hand, it's 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 kind of egregious, like, this game we play with them because, like, the, like the fact is that, like, our idea of the student-athlete is totally just, like, a fiction. Like, like none of the... Like, they're, they're, they're essentially, like, not students. Just athletes. Like, they're, they're, they're students in the, in the same way that, like... Um, the the line that I used in, in the piece that I read was saying that such and such is is a student at this school is like saying that a tomato is a fruit mm-hmm. like you're, yeah a tomato is a fruit but but it's but it's also not for for a, for a bunch of reasons and so um it's just it's just kind of uh, I don't know it's 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 really complicated. In a lot of ways, it kind of mirrors, I guess, like the um, like the military industrial complex. If you really like look at the way that like our like devotion to athletics, especially at like the university level, has kind of grown since like I guess like the fifties. But um, I don't know. Uh, I I I was a student athlete tutor for the athletic association for like five months, maybe a little bit less, but. Uh, you, you, you learn some really, some really weird stuff that, like, they, like, have to do in order to, like, maintain this, like, status of being, like, a, an athlete on the, in the university. Like, you can only wear clothes that are, like, certain brands because that's what the university does. And if you don't, they, like, take it out of your, your stipend. You, uh, some people are required to eat a certain amount of food a day. They have to, like, check in with somebody. Um... You have to get tutored for all of your classes. 
you have to go to a tutoring session for all of your classes, and that's not like a um, that's not like a university thing. That's like an NCAA thing. Yeah, and so uh, like I, I and like the, the tutoring system itself is just kind of it's it's a really weird apparatus that's like thrown onto the university because it's um the like I was tutoring classes that I didn't even like take. They, they just need, like, an, a student-athlete in the room with somebody who is on the payroll as, like, a tutor. And then that, like, that like fulfills the requirement and then they can pay. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a really weird world. And I think my, my opinions on it are kind of complicated. And I guess I'm just trying to, like a lot of writers, I'm just writing to kind of, like, navigate the complicatedness of, like, my opinions towards it. Here's a clip uh, from Annie Ho. Uh, Will and I uh, spoke to her about uh, kind of this idea of trauma being passed down through generations and also uh, kind of uh, America's blind spot regarding history and, and Vietnam. I mean, I think that when you've experienced a lot of traumatic events, um, it's really hard to talk about it. So you kind of re resort to just kind of accepting it and not really talking about it because my parents don't really talk about you know those kinds of things unless they're really drunk or you know something like that um but also a big thing is um you know asian americans in the u.s uh are typically thought of you know as like a model minority so you know a common thing is that um a lot of Asian Americans don't like to speak up about anything because a common phrase is, you know, like, we're not like other minorities, we're, we're the good ones, we're quiet, you know, we make money and we're good at math and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it, it just makes, you know. I mean, like a lot of things in history, America is just, you know, the American public has just you know, we do acknowledge it, but at the same time, we're just like, oh, well, it's in the past, it's done with, you know, we can move on. Um, yeah, I am, um, this is kind of unrelated, but I am taking a public health class, and, you know, the, you know, the HIV AIDS epidemic is, you know, really big, but we were talking about how no one really even knows it's a problem anymore because we've kind, kind of forgotten about it. So I think, I think we forget about a lot of traumatic events in history. Uh, so that was a snippet from a kind of a noisy conversation. Uh, one of the one of the takeaways I had from that conversation with Annie Ho was uh, uh, how she said that she didn't name uh, any of her poems, uh, partly out of uh, this this idea, this sentiment that to name a thing is to is to own it, and and uh, and and it just doesn't doesn't work that way for for poems uh because you can't you can't own that feeling and i thought that was a very very beautiful sentiment all right uh next i'm gonna patch in an interview that i did with ian crosby uh, about a year ago on free gum which was a program that he hosted on wuog um if you want to listen to the, the full interview, it can be found on SoundCloud. 
along with all of the other episodes and uh, interviews that, that Ian's had. Uh, so uh, check it out. There's some pretty cool stuff. <laughs> and I may be taking that out of context yeah. in all fairness, but if it's not a monetary value that you are providing for your poetry and all this sort of work, what sort of value are you providing? Is it for yourself? Is it for a community? Is it, What is that? Um, yeah, I mean, both. Um, I, uh, so, um, I think it comes down to, uh, I think Robert Bly had kind of described it best in, uh, he says that when we are children, we are these radiant balls of light. When we get older, our parents tell us, you know, hey, don't spit on the floor. You know, this is the living room. What are you? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, and so you take that part of you and that wants to spit on the floor, and you mm-hmm. you put it in this little bag, and then you stand up on a chair, and they say, don't stand don't on a chair. chair. You're, you're gonna fall, and you're gonna crack your head, and gosh, we just got you. You know, you can't <laughs> <lose>. <laughs> just made you. Come on. Take that part of you that wants to stand on the chair. You put it in the put it in the bag, and before you know it. By the time you're a quote-unquote adult, you have a sliver of light and a big black bag a mile long. Oh, man. And, and I see it all around, you know. People who are, are so convinced that they're grown up and they say, I'm going to be a grown up, you know, and, and they've just got it in their mind. But you, you're not, there's, there's no such thing. Like, you are a living being. You get one chance there's there's only you know to be you you might as well enjoy (laughs) life rather than try to put on these airs so i think a lot of poetry is is an act of mining and and digging it supplies we put things into the bag until we're about 25 Mm -hmm. when we turn 25 we then start taking certain things back out of the bag yeah and um and so i think it's all process individually for like taking these certain things out of the bag that uh just reinvigorate uh just your sense of of being you know and i think hopefully those things also resonate with other people wow i'm getting so many good quotes man i'm gonna (laughs) chop this sound bite up i'm just gonna use it we are nearing the end so thanks for tuning in Dude, where's my poetry? Big thanks to Trevor Lisa and Annie Ho for reading. The background music has been crafted, shared by Marshall Moore. Marshall has an act called uh, Quiet Pack. Check him out on Bandcamp. Will Stanier is the host Dude, where's my poetry? My name's Kelly Patronus. I put it all together into this podcast. All right. Uh, next up, we've got our last interview. Uh, it's with uh, uh, our musical guest, who's Jack Cherry, along with his brother, uh, Jay Cherry. Uh, unfortunately, I was only able to get a hold of uh, Jack Cherry for the interview that we did uh, post-show. Um, 
but in it he uh he talks about his uh his relationship with his brother jay and uh i also throw in a pretty big curveball so there's that but uh but yeah uh yeah jack uh he uh lives lives in athens georgia and um he makes some pretty great music with a group called Juan de Fuca. You can check him out on Bandcamp. And uh, I'm just going to let the interview play and then uh, have uh, Jack and Jay Cherry play us out with one final song called uh, The Zombie Song. Jack Cherry, is, is life a dream? <laughs> See, I think my brother and I would disagree on this. I think he would say it is, but I'm—I I would say it's not. My my dad told us um, in ninth grade or something that um, Jay would be a vampire and I would be a werewolf because my brother is ethereal and I'm feral, and. I've thought about this more than anything else my dad's ever said to me, but it was like we were watching Twilight or something, mm-hmm. and it was just a weird half joke he made. But anyways, I would say life is not a dream, and uh, I don't know. I'm sort of like ready to... Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to like. I'm gonna. I got. I got some clothes in the dryer, and the dryer goes like <laughs> okay. crazy. So I'm just gonna kind of preemptively turn it off. Does your dryer over dry your clothes? Like, will it dry them too long? Does it not? Because my dryer, I have to, I have to turn on like eighty times to get my clothes dry. Yeah. I don't know if it overdries it. It usually does a pretty good job. That's it. Um. So, uh, right, yeah. And I feel like, like going back to this question, I know we're like kind of far away from it now, but I feel like Jay and I both sort of exist in this similar gray space, and. Jay and I'm sort of like on a mission to prove physical value of things that may or may not exist whereas like Jay sort of revels in absurdity a lot more than I do and is like probably better than I am at like dealing with absurdity um so I don't know he's definitely I don't know yeah Anyways. Alright, you ready?
Get up and walk away 